Hey everyone, Uh, welcome to this week's podcast for the Locative Media grad course. Um, This week I'll be discussing cartographies uh, and so looking at ideas around coordinates, uh, geometries and geodata. Many of the ideas um, that we're going to talk about or that I'm going to talk about uh, in this particular session, we've already begun to touch on a little bit in our um, previous conversations about space and about location. Um, but I wanted to use this opportunity to think a little bit more deep, deeply about the specifics of cartography um, and cartographic science, as well as geographic information science. And I think what I really wanted to try and do was to try and trace a pathway, or I suppose a genealogy, from these earlier ideas that Descartes had about coordinate geometries and um, the kind of mind-body dualism and some of the work of Leibniz as well in um, not just the kind of monodological metaphysics but actually in the construction of binary to try and and trace the way in which those particular ideas are asserting themselves in contemporary uh, cartographies and contemporary ways of making maps. Uh, And I think this is really important because a, a lot of maps are based upon particular principles and I think particular assertions of scientificity um, or an enlightenment science that is still quite rationalistic and can be quite positivistic as well. And I think I really struggled to try and find good readings for this week. Um, I think the, the Harvey one wasn't as perhaps, it was perhaps a little bit too geographically focused and it doesn't really ex- expand on the cartographic as much Um and as I remembered it would, um, simply because in order to have or a lot of the writing that happens that critiques or takes a critical stance towards uh, fields like geographic information science or GIS or cartographic science um, or other spatial sciences or geosciences, um, most of those particular journal articles or, or writings, books, whatever, uh, tend to have an assumption that you're already involved in the field and you already have a basic understanding of what's being talked about. So you have a basic understanding of the different laws of geography. They have, you know, an understanding of what distance is or what projection might mean. And I think um, for, for many of you, you don't necessarily come from uh, geography, specifically cartography or specifically the spatial sciences. So I think a lot of these basic ideas uh, aren't as perhaps uh, taken for granted or axiomatic um, beyond that particular field. So it's actually quite difficult to find particular readings. So if you come across anything that really begins to sort of trouble this idea of the cartographic, um, so anything from datums through to distance or projections, um, please let me know. I am looking for readings for this week. I mean, it's not it's not my standard practice to put my own work in any course I'm teaching. Um, usually if I'm teaching something, it's because I've sort of thought beyond my, my previous stuff. But, you know, again, in this case, I just really struggled to, to find something that talked about the specifics of cartography or cartographic reason um, or cartographic reasoning, rationalism, etc., cetera, uh, without necessarily um, being too in-depth and, and having too much assumed knowledge. Um, but to that, anyway, um, I think it's probably a good idea just to outline um, some of the basic kinds of ideas that you get in cartography. And then we'll talk a little bit about uh, Carter's step-by-step geography's myth. So 
um, you know, Carter basically tries to, to make this argument about a rational approach to the environment or, or to understanding space. Um, similarly, Harvey, and yeah, I'm still not sure about this Harvey piece, um, Harvey tries to make arguments about the way in which geographic knowledge is constructed. So we've got sort of two big questions of, of knowledge. Um, and then I think we've got this sort of um, other question in my piece that points a little bit more towards how we might understand digital cartography or digital manifestations or iterations of cartography. And I think you might begin to see some of that uh, in the course, uh, but because this isn't a GIS course, um, some of the, the broader ideas around, again, distance or time, projection, um, like location, etc., cetera, uh, perhaps aren't as uh, totally... Uh, developed, but I think that computational angle is actually really important, and I'll discuss why uh, towards the end of this podcast. Um, so, I mean, the cartographic just the cartographic, and it's quite interesting because the cartographic sits quite well between last week's uh, discussion on territories and next week's discussion on, on visualities, because really, it is this hinge between both of these ideas. You know, the kind of material production and control of space through mapping but also through um you know particular things like cities and the way in which um grids or urbanisms are produced uh, or built to be controlled and then visuality on the other side which is um you know the idea of the scopic um of the uh perhaps sublime as well of the photographic and i think cartography sits quite well in between. And if you look at or you read f sort of philosophically about cartography, not just as an object, but as a, as a way of doing things, as a process um, or as a, as a, a skill or a, an action or even as a profession, um, you kind of get all of these different claims towards the cartographic that I think are really interesting. So for instance, um, in my piece, we talk a lot about cartographic reason, uh, and cartographic reason is basically um, this idea that Franco Farinelli puts out and then is really taken up by Gunnar Olsen and Dagmar Reichart. Uh, and basically, it's this argument that where prior to Descartes, mathematicians um, would basically solve problems. And I think, um, again, I've, I've mentioned before George Gervaisi Joseph's work on um, the Crest of the Pe Peacock on the non-European roots of mathematics, sort of describe all of these different practices or cultures of mathematic pra mathematical practice uh, where you know, it, it's not so much about these universal ideas, it's about solving problems. Um, and, and Farinelli writes, so where Euclid uh, solved problems, Descartes proved theorems. So it was this sort of switch from finding a problem in the world and then using mathematics to solve it, so how far from A to B, to um, actually coming up with a philosophical rationalist or, you know, universal idea and then trying to prove that this would work in every circumstance, that this was a universal law. Um, so that's the first kind of idea, this idea of cartographic reason. And what's really important uh, is that we still have, like, there are laws, <laughs> I use that in, in quotation marks, there are laws of geography um, that are still very much heralded by GI scientists, so people who use maps and make maps on everything from public health to 
construction, mineralogy, uh, fire maps, etc. So they, they still do hold this law. So Waldo, Waldo Tobler, who was one of the early geocomputational scientists, um, kind of came up with a... I mean, I've heard that it's, it was a joke, um, but it's been taken. It's still taken very seriously, uh, this idea that everything is related to everything else, um, but near things are more related than far things. Um, so the closer things are together, the more likely they are to be related, or the more related they are than things that are far. And then um, I think that's called it's the first law of geography um, or spatial autocorrelation. And then the, the second law is Michael Goodchild's, this is uh, 2004 law, which is of spatial heterogeneity. So basically it's a law that says everything's kind of different to everything else. So the, the only constant is constant heterogeneity, um, which is, I suppose, a kind of contradiction um, because if everything's constantly heterogeneous, then it can't be constant. <sighs> So, I mean, these, these are the kinds of things that keep coming up um, when we talk about uh, geographic information science or, or contemporary digital cartography, uh, web mapping as well, if you want to use those terms. So we've got this idea of cartographic reason, but you also see in the cartographic lexicon ideas like, um, so Saeed talks about cartographic impulses, which is this desire towards um, certain kinds of um, of mapping, of surveillance, um, of towards a Cartesian understanding of space and the territoriality that comes with that. Um, so this, this impulse towards uh, going to places and mapping them and then claiming them um, towards thinking that the map is perhaps somehow a more accurate or truer explanation of the territory, of the landscape, than the landscape itself or, or certainly the people whose experiences live in there. I think the way in which as well... Um, so Saeed was Palestinian and he had a lot to say uh, around the um, development of the state of Israel and the way in which that kind of went down, um, but also the way in which a lot of the problems um, between uh, the Israeli and Palestinian states were kind of sorted out on maps. Uh, and so you kind of constantly see this map, is maps in international relations and geopolitics. And I think this idea of the cartographic impulse by Said is quite closely related to another idea. And I didn't set this reading because it's actually a really difficult book to find. Um, and I didn't have access to a photocopier. Um, but it's called The Cartographic Eye by Simon, Ray, uh, Simon Ryan. Um, and it's a book about the first explorers in Australia. And he talks about the cartographic eye as a kind of scopic regime um, developed through the explorer's gaze. So the idea that you don't just go into a space um, in a way that you might live there or you might inhabit it um, or that you might travel through it, but with a specific um, desire towards exploration um, as a scientific, colonial and territorial expedition. And he argues that the cartographic eye, which isn't just this kind of top-down um, god trick that Donna Haraway talked about, um, but it's also in, embodied in um, the drawings, the scientific drawings, um, so natural history drawings, in the paintings as well of early um, settlements um, and early explorations in Australia. It's also uh, evident in maps, of course, um, 
but also as well the way in which um, like the picturesque might happen as well. So like trying to imagine the space. And I think what's particularly telling when we talk about the cartographic eye is that, um, you know, cartography always has this kind of reference, this, this centre point, this datum. Uh, and what you see um, in early explorations is a real struggle to try and understand places like the Australian landscape in relation to European experiences. And what is posited as this objective, very neutral, very scientific process of, of drawing, of painting, of mapping, um, and of, of, of sort of articulating uh, what was happening is actually intensely subjective and frankly a little uncanny, quite eerie. Uh, so that some of the earliest paintings of... Um, of the Australian landscape uh, that are still in the in the um, galleries, state galleries of New South Wales, um, kind of show this landscape that's very green and very very verdant, um, because these painters, these people, had been trained on the landscapes um, of Great Britain, uh, and so when they came to paint the Australian landscape, um, that they they'd been trained to use greens um, and to kind of use colour palettes. And to be able to express things like light according to the way in which a European um, landscapes work, so European hills and mountains, etc. Um, but of course, the Australian environment is much drier uh, and much browner. And so you get these really peculiar paintings that are very, very green uh, when it's categorically not the case at all, especially when we know that the first fleet arrived um, in January, which is the middle of summer in Australia, uh, and actually nearly starved because of it. So I think, you know, you kind of get these fallacies. Um, and I think these kind of this idea of the picturesque of, of how you can arrange things um, and, and how as well that relates to a certain kind of order, so the ordering of the landscape. Um, and so for, for Ryan, this idea of the cartographic eye um, isn't just about the territorialization of the landscape that you sort of see in the cartographic impulse. Um, and it's not just about... Um, it, it is much more about this sort of underlying rationalism that you see in the cartographic in cartographic reason. Um, and so, you know, you kind of get this really interesting conflation that you see a little bit in, in Harvey's work um, and definitely in Carter's as well, um, as well as mine, actually, about the relationship between the cartographic and the Cartesian as well. And so... The picturesque, the explorer's eye, you know, you're coming into a landscape with a pre-established taxonomy, with a pre-established system of order through which you can categorise and represent the world. And, and Ryan argues that that's quite a scopic uh, kind of, of regime. And I mean, similarly, you can look at Derek Gregory's work. Derek Gregory's a big dude in geography, he's educated, I think he's did, he did his PhD at Cambridge and he's now at UBC and... Um, pretty revered kind of guy. And I mean, the thing as well, I think this is part of the problem with this idea of the cartographic is that there's a lot of discussion of the cartographic in relation to the geographic. Um, and so in the book Geographical Imaginations, uh, Gregory talks as well again about cartographies and cartographic imaginations, these ideas of, of the visual um, and understanding the world as a kind of fixed state. So you get this kind of conflation here between geography as a scientific or pseudoscientific discipline uh, and cartography as the visualisation 
of that as the the actualization, the spatial knowledge production of that kind of geographical way of understanding things. And I think, you know, we, if we think back to sort of what Sylvia Winter was saying about the construction of the uh, the rational man or the rational kind of, you know, well, actually it was a rational man versus this this other or this space of otherness, um, you can kind of see as well that cartography is a tool that operates, is a tool of this rational man to try and create or subject or at least find order in that other, to assume that that other, if not rational, must be ordered in some way that they themselves cannot understand but can be understood through science. And I think, for me, this is still very much a basis of spatial science. So if we think about spatial science, we think about geosciences, we think about contemporary cartography, there are heaps of applications of big data um, and the way in which that works. And so anytime you're basically representing something on a map uh, digitally, you're actually calling into being like a whole bunch of different ideas of an analysis etc so you know on one hand we've got datums and I think we've talked a little bit about this um, but if we're measuring something we need points from which to measure so we need these kinds of ideas and I think um, re you know related to that as well is this idea of, of projection so projection is basically if you imagine the world so we often imagine the world as a round sphere uh, it's not it's kind of more spheroid, so it's actually um, a little bit fatter at the equator. So it's a bit like um, if you've got a tennis ball and you put your hands at the top and the bottom and you squashed it just a little bit, um, so the, the outside just gets a bit fatter. Um, but actually, even that is a very cartographic understanding, like it's still a geometric understanding of what the world is like. Uh, in reality, um, the Earth is much more, I mean, it's called a geoid, so G-E-O-I-D, which is a very irregular, spheroid-ish kind of shape uh, that moves, basically. So if we think about from the depth of the Mariana Trench to the heights of Mount Everest, um, we can think about the way in which the tectonic plates are always shifting and moving. So the Earth is actually this kind of breathing, circulating, moving geological, ecological, biological um, kind of atmospheric, uh, I suppose, nexus or kind of um, intensity of things altogether um, that we try and represent. So, and the thing is, is that the problem is, is that unless you're going to travel around with a globe on your back, um, but also with a globe. So if you've got like this sort of, you've kind of got this earth, you've kind of assumed it into something that's like a sphere, even though it's not. So this kind of breathing, moving, circulating earth that isn't actually fully north and south either. It's, either. it's a bit tilted. Um, and you're like, oh, we need to represent that somehow. You might put that on something like a sphere, but the issue is, of course, a sphere like a globe, it doesn't have very high resolution. So it's not a very, um, it's a very small scale map. Um, so it's got a small amount of information. You might see the countries of the world, but you certainly can't zoom in uh, and see 
uh, more and more detail uh, as you kind of go into the, the globe. Um, and I mean, this is especially the case if we think to the time in which exploration is happening. And so what you need to do is find a way of, of presenting the world on the current kinds of representational tools that you have for moving about. And that is, you know, things like papyrus or paper or, um, you know, flat surfaces. And so you produce what you call a, a projection. So there's actually this calculation which um, is a datum, like a spherical datum. So the starting point from which we understand the world as it exists, um, which is this kind of um, geodetic, ellipsoid kind of shape that, you know, in the same way that we can sort of say, well, you know, here is the centre of um, Berkeley. We measure Berkeley from here. So if you go to Google Maps and you look up Berkeley, have a look at where the, the pin drop is. Where's the default centre of Berkeley? Um, so, you know, in the same way that we might have this kind of default, we actually need a default Earth as well, like a, a baseline Earth. Um, and this is what the, the geodetic um, ellipsoid is. It's sort of this combination of the sphere and the geoid all together. From that, what you need to kind of imagine, and I think if we were having this in person, I said this to my undergraduates when we were talking about projections as well, is what's kind of fun is if you actually get something like a balloon and you draw the world on the balloon and then you pop the balloon and you try and stretch it out flat, um, you actually get all of these warped kinds of projections. And so the projections that we look at, the maps that we look at that are flat, whether they're a wall map on um, your wall, like a map on your wall or an atlas in a book, they're all using particular kinds of projections, which are ways of matching what should be on a, a geoidal earth that's kind of moving and matching those and sort of stretching them out to be on a certain kind of projection, um, so to be on a flat surface. And there are so many different projections, and I do encourage you to actually just have a little Google at projections. Um, so there's some really beautiful ones like the butterfly projections, um, or also um, the Buckminster Fuller projections as well are really, really fun. Um, you know, you get different kinds. I'm not going to go into like all the different kind of conic or cylindrical or azuthamuthal or like the different kinds of, of projections. I'm not going to go too far into that because it's kind of dull and it's quite visual as well, but do have a look. Um, but essentially the point is, is that we still use these projections. So most... Um, GIS doesn't happen on properly, like it, a lot of pure GIS, a lot of mapping doesn't happen on a round globe. It will happen on a flat map or a continuous projection that is um, cylindrical or increasingly though, sometimes maps that we use are actually based on a spheroid. Um, so actually it's, you know, the world is mapped onto a sphere. Um, but of course, then it doesn't have the same depth. It doesn't necessarily move in the same ways as well. Um, and this makes a big difference for, A, how we measure distance. Um, so what looks like the shortest distance on a, on a flat surface map is not the same as the shortest distance on a round world. And that's why when we fly in planes, you see, like, if you're flying from San Francisco to London, for instance, you're kind of taking this really peculiar curved path um, which doesn't look like it's necessarily the quickest way, but it's because of the way in which the world works and actually um, the top half and the bottom half of the world are stretched out and they, they appear much bigger than they actually are. So you get these kinds of projections and these are projections that we work with every day 
when we do cartography. And these projections are super political as well. So a lot of countries have different projections. Um, China has its own projection, which doesn't work with Google Maps. So if you ever go to, ch to China and you try and use Google Maps and for some reason, like everything's, you know, moved to the right, um, it's because um, the Chinese datum is different to uh, the world datum. Most web maps, however, use a single projection, which is called web mercator. Uh, and so there's kind of this homogenization of projection in digital cartography. So um, Australia has a geodetic uh, um, datum of Australia. Uh, GDA 2020 is actually in, in development right now. Um, they have to keep updating it because the continent keeps moving. Um, you know, the US has its own um, datum. So there, all of these different um, places have different datums, but a little bit like corporations, web maps kind of operate beyond the sphere of national influence. And so a lot of the datums are actually established not through the geopolitics of mapping of cartography, but through the strange geopolitics of uh, computing, which is why I included my piece there about computing um, to try and get us to think a little bit more about that. Um, so I'll just quickly go through... Um, so this is kind of the question of projection, basically. It's the way in which um, the world is still set up. And it's worth when you're kind of playing around with your web mapping uh, in a few weeks' time or even when you're doing your field research and kind of dealing with your data, looking at some of these cartographic elements, like the coordinate in your GeoJSON um, and you'll see what a GeoJSON is if you don't already know, like these little data packets. And the, the fact that pretty much most data that you get cartographically these days um, adhere to a single projection, um, and you can change these projections, and if you've confused your projections, they'll all end up in the wrong spot. And it's quite interesting or quite funny when you do that. Um, but there is this kind of homogenization um, element, and I think just to move on to some of the readings, like Carter's reading, I think, does a good job of linking the project of homogenization to the production of geographic knowledge. Uh, and if you look at the next um, chapter in his book, which I think is called Mapping the Coastlines of Knowledge, it talks about mapping the Australian continent more specifically and the circumnavigation of Australia by Matthew Flinders. Um, but he does a good job of trying to explain this idea of that which conforms to something like geography's myth or what Simon Ryan might call the cartographic eye and that which does not conform. And I think what's interesting as well is he kind of points out that it is a total mythology. It's not really quite as simple as people having an idea about what the landscape should look like and moving it to um, a different place and it not working, but actually that the kind of production of scientific or enlightenment knowledge and this idea of conformity and order actually precludes uh, unconformities that you might see also in those home spaces as well. So London completely fails at having the kind of urban ordered grid that we discussed uh, last week that, um, when we talked about things like Philadelphia, the Philadelphia street number model or the way in which... Um, New York or other kinds of cities have attempted grid structures. London doesn't have a grid. It has a jumble at best. 
Um, and so I think as well, these kind of, the, the, the combination of this desire for order, how order might be established through practices of exploration and scientific kind of pursuits, um, and then empire, and then how all of that is somehow related to the othering and subjugation of non-European peoples is really particularly interesting. I think this is where cartography kind of, um, and I think a lot of the questions that we might have about the politics of, of maps and cartography really come to the fore. And so, you know, it's it's this kind of almost like a false equivalent that um, firstly, like, A, there's even a rational man. Second, that they might come from a rational landscape. And thirdly, um, that therefore this kind of imperial endeavour is somehow rational and therefore su superior like it's so weird um it doesn't it doesn't actually flow on very well um and i think the um carter piece particularly when he's talking about let me just refer to the particular um part of the reading so when he's talking about the unconformities towards the very end um of sicker point um you can kind of see these sort of rock formations that don't really work according to the way in which they're expected to work. Um, so, you know, Playfair's description of the expedition to, to Sikar Point. And again, you get this kind of expedition, this question mark of what happens when the space that you're expecting to explore, to expecting to find order kind of is disordered and I think as well, and I think this is really important, the kind of exhibiting of the other as well. Um, so the exhibiting of um, this kind of the strange or the weird. Um, and I think for me, like uh, in the very beginning, Carter says, he sort of quotes J.B. Harley, um, you know, that the steps in making a map, selection, omission, simplification, classification, the creation of hierarchies and symbolization are all inherently rhetorical, um, which they are. And they sort of like, I think this is the kind of main point about this idea of cartographies that maps don't just, and to quote um, Carter, they don't just enable, they disable. So they enable certain productions of knowledge. They enable particularly explorers and enlightenment productions of knowledge while simultaneously disabling other ways of knowing. And I think for me personally, one of the reasons I am so keen to teach this course and to see your projects is that I feel exactly the same way about GIS contemporarily. So it's not just that, you know, GIS and the maps that we're going to make in the labs enable us to show all sorts of information in ways and we could do analysis and find patterns where, you know, there, there are models of like, you know, where clusters might appear of things or the different distances between different objects and how there are sort of gravitational kind of pools of some things in some places. You can find out so much interesting information through spatial analysis, through um, the basic collection and then representation of data and then using that data like a GeoJSON file to map like heat maps, um, to map 
and analyze, you know, how many things are inside a boundary versus outside a boundary to use these sort of simple concepts of the point, the line and the polygon to map that there's super, super powerful things that you can do with it. But at the same time, not only like it doesn't, they just, it doesn't just enable us to do that. It disables our ability to do so much other to, to basically think about location or what it means to be situated in space in so many other ways. And so when we make something like a mobile phone application, when we make something like a web application, and even now when we make like an AR or a game application in an in engine like Unity, if we have to think about space and the spatiality of things, we have to use maps. There aren't really a lot of other options available to us that have been built uh, for us to think about, again, how we might understand our spatiality um, from waiting from an Uber to, you know, sites of memory and history. Um, and I think, so for me, this kind of question, like, you know, the digital map, it enables certain kinds of things, but it's also disabled us. It means that, you know, it's disabled what we can do and how we can think about uh, space so much through this kind of default uh, presence, this default homogeneity of you know, trying to use anything other than the web Mercator projection is really difficult. Um, again, a conversation in my undergraduate class uh, about trying to do different projections because they wanted to show things like the Arctic Circle. It's actually really difficult uh, because most web mapping applications, Mapbox included, use uh, web Mercator. And so if they wanted to use something else like Robinson or, um, heaven forbid, the Peters projection, which is a really cool projection that basically um, that evens out the um, distance so that actually, you know, on, on a Mercator projection, Greenland looks like it's the size of Africa when it's really, like, tiny in comparison to Africa. And, um, you know, so it, it basically um, tries to manage this sort of representation um, of areas um, so it's, it's more kind of um, true and I think with projections you've always got to like it's always a trade-off so whether or not you want to show the sort of shape of, of places um, like countries in Europe more which a Mercator projection does well or whether or not you want to show the true sense of comparative size of places which is something like a Peters projection does better um, but, you know, this question of like, well, how else can I use projections? Like, well, it's actually very difficult. Uh, and if you want to create your own projections, then you need to really start coding yourself. Like you can't just be an app developer and choose a Google Maps plugin or choose a Mapbox plugin and choose a different projection. Like that's just not a possibility. So I think this idea that so much about the way in which we might think um, about the world, this kind of the production of geographic knowledge and the way in which cartography has been so implicated in that really continues into the kind of contemporary computational way of knowing space. So we're not so much explorers of space anymore. Um, you know, we don't really wander around and other and subjugate Well, we do, but you know, that, that's not so much in vogue at the moment. Now we compute space. And so, um, I was talking to Brandy Summers, a colleague of mine, um, about the Black Lives Matter uh, uh, drawings of, like, the words on the roads. I think what's really interesting is that 
it wasn't the pictures that emerged were not pictures taken by activists at that space standing on top of a building necessarily there was this whole thing of like someone was sitting at a desk taking satellite pictures uh, of those spaces so someone was sitting there using satellites using a mechanical eye um, a mechanical cartographic eye um, a mechanical cartographic you know imagination to basically explore the world through this mechanical cartographic eye and take pictures of it and I think you know that kind of is a kind of exploration it's a, it's a digital computational exploration literally through the production of maps now as well and so we I don't know if you've all got friends or if you've ever um, gone exploring in a neighborhood through Google Street View um, so you've actually gone and you've explored like there's a whole bunch of people who just do that who, who kind of understand the world like we don't explore necessarily on foot in explorer parties with diaries and drag back various artifacts that we found and stick them in museums we now explore on the internet um, sometimes in groups sometimes alone take screenshots uh, of what we find and then stick them in a blog but the practice is still kind of similar and I think the way in which the cartographic as Carter says again and again and again invisibilizes itself it hides itself uh, in that process is really telling um, because the satellite view, you know, we learned with the location um, about the problems with the God trick um, as well in, in bodies. Like we learn about these kind of problems, the top-down view. Um, we know about the grids that we kind of live. We know that Google Street Maps, um, or Google Street View um, is a particular kind of construction. Like we, we know all of this, um, but, it is so – we don't see the cartographies behind it. We don't see that, you know, there are certain kinds of projections that we're looking at that that we're kind of, you know, the distances that we measure, the way in which we work using these these tools, which are cartographic tools like satellite technology was developed to basically monitor the world during the Second World War. And I think it wasn't really coincidental that satellites started really going up um, following, in, like, in the middle of the Cold War. And there are all kinds of um, attacks, actually, um, at a base near San Francisco where people, like, knew that GPS satellites and imaging satellites were kind of new exploratory tools. Um, and we can talk a little bit about that more in the visual analysis. So just quickly on to um, Harvey's piece. Um... So cartographic identity. So he'd kind of, I think I forgot um, a little bit just how insular some questions around geography or geographical discourse can be. Um, and I think perhaps what he does is he kind of picks up some of this sort of stuff around the way in which the world becomes fixed um, in the geographical imagination or the geographic geography's myth that Carter talks about, uh, even though... Dark Riding was published almost 20 years later um, after this one. Um, but also talks a little bit as well about it's not just that there is this kind of mythology of a geography, but the geography more generally really risks kind of constructing its own identity 
as a cartographic identity as well. Um, so that, you know, and I mean, for a, a Marxist, this can be construed as a, a kind of constructivist piece uh, as well. But, you know, he's basically kind of um, talking about some of these key ideas. So scale is another really interesting idea. That's a, a kind of cartographic idea, and it's also a geographical idea as well. So we can think about scale. Um, so the relationship between cartographies and scales is also really kind of interesting uh, and something that also you find a lot when we're looking at particular maps. So scale can operate kind of in, in three ways maybe. So you can think about scale firstly in terms of size, so how big or small something is. And cartographic disciplines and cartographic traditions have set scales. So I remember years and years ago um, asking my supervisor, who used to be a map librarian, uh, way back, what his favourite map um, of the world was, like what was his favourite map in the world. And without hesitation, he went, the, you know, Swiss topo, 1 to 25,000 um, scale map of the Matterhorn. Um, because scale is important within cartographic traditions, how far in or out you are. And, you know, something that's small scale, um, so it's quite far out, so you can only see a small amount of detail, um, that kind of shows a certain kind of relationality and people are very specific about choosing that. You know, a small scale map is useful for planning a route but not necessarily useful for navigation because it doesn't go in far enough for you to know when to turn right or when to turn left. Something that's smaller scale, so if we think about the scale of a street directory... And that's pretty set. Uh, that's pretty standard. And I mean, the same with, um, I mean, Zoom is not the same as scale as well. Um, so when you use something like Google Maps, you zoom in and out. Depending on where you're looking, this Zoom, so Zoom 13 might have different scales in two different places as well. So scale is kind of this weird contextual thing as well that, is still bound up in different parts of cartography. Um, and then you can understand scale as well in terms of levels, and I think this is something that um, maybe contemporary digital cartography has really not critiqued as much as it should. So if we think about the way in which the world is scaled, so we've got our body, maybe our street, our neighbourhood. Um, so these are kind of experiential scales. But, you know, we've got our house number, scale one. We have our street name, scale two. We have our suburb, scale three. Um, maybe we've got our zip code, scale four. And then we start thinking about administrative scale. So we've got the county that we're in, Alameda County. Uh, we might have, um, if there's a, a broader metropolitan region, you might be part of that. Then we've got our state. Uh, and then we've got, you know, our nation, but even like the Pacific west coast uh, and then we've got our nation and i think these scales um are geographical scales and in intensely cartographical scales which often don't have a lot to do with the experience um of those spaces as well um and so you know if you, if you look at a population map of the u.s then it looks like it's pretty you know concentrated um, or if you looked at a map of the green spaces of the US, etc., um, or electoral maps are actually super useful as well because, you know, if you compare the size of California and how many senators it has compared to, I don't know, Idaho, 
Um, you know, you get these questions of, of administrative scale, um, and they do matter as well. Um, so a lot of maps don't show things like counties. Um, they're much more address-oriented. So you often don't see the political influence between places. Um, and I'm, I think I know where the limits of the city of Berkeley are because of Redfin, not because of Google Maps. Um, so you kind of, it kind of hides these governmental things as well. Um, and it also hides the way in which geographers have traditionally defined regions um, or, or relations. So back to that, that first law of geography, <laughs> near things are more related than far things. Well, what is near and what is far? Like, these are super important questions. Um, and regional geography, from which we get a lot of early uh, work in computation, a lot of early work on distance and location, um, in geography, so I'm thinking here of people like um, the Berkeley geographer Alan Pred. I've mentioned Gunnar Olsen a bunch of times. You could think about Torsten Hagerstrand. Uh, you could think about um, William Bungie. Um, so you kind of, and of course Waldo Tobler, um, who are all in conversation with each other. <laughs> um, and I, again, I don't really need to point out to you what kind of people these old white dudes were um but they all enact this certain way of thinking which is still very 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 much fundamental in contemporary cartographic teaching so if you learn gis you will learn this stuff you will learn these people you'll learn things like locational analysis you'll learn something like central place theory you'll learn all these kind of scientific ways of thinking about things and you'll learn these rules about what constitutes a region, what constitutes nearness, what constitutes farness. And this is through which space and place is analysed through how maps are used. And in a way, this very subtly kind of bleeds into um, a lot of the contemporary map making. And I mean, I think perhaps less so for software developers uh, who kind of come up with their own more relational um, more ontological ways of thinking about things. So you get things like object-oriented ontology, so this idea of carving the world up into discrete objects. Um, but, it, you know, it's still there. Um, and a lot of the kind of analysis of, of big data from our spatial data from our location, I mean, um, you know, how... Uh, so if you look at the maps, like the heat maps of um, Strava... Uh, which we looked at, I think, to begin with, um, or of, uh, you know, different like Snapchat heat maps. Um, so anything like that. We look at the fire maps. Um, these are all done using these kinds of principles as well. So, you know, it's still very much alive in contemporary digital mapping. And so much of contemporary digital mapping is very much kind of centred in locative media and locative media very much depends upon those kinds of trajectories. So this is kind of what I want to start thinking about um, a bit. And I want you to sort of think about this a little bit as you um, kind of begin to make your own maps and sort of see how some of the basic maps um, work. And I, you don't need to be a GIS expert in this particular case, but it's more just to kind of reiterate the point that there are still these rules. There is it's still a hell of a lot of positivity, no, that's the wrong word, positivism. Positivity is fine. Positivism is a little bit, you know, 
need to be a bit more critical of that. Um, and boosterism is really not great. Um, so we need to like, you know, to, to, to assert the point that this is still, you know, that the science of, of making maps is still very much understood to be a science, something that is objective, something that is neutral, something that is bias-free. And if we think about so much of the culture around spatial science in Silicon Valley, so all of the mapping agencies, you still get these kinds of, of conversations um, across the board. And I think just to end, this is kind of what I was trying to explain to some degree um, and why I included the chapter from my book on, on Leibniz is it's part of a middle section in the book. Um, the first bit um, was sort of about lines um, and the drawing of the line and how um, the way in which drawing um, cartographically enacts certain kinds of power through bounding, etc. And, I mean, it's quite similar to the Paul Carter piece and also to some of the pieces that we read last week. Um, and that's accompanied, and it very much deals with the Cartesian question um, of this, you know, universal logic of, of mathematics. Um, and, again, I mean, it's still in GIS, um, and it's just becoming more and more narrow as more and more conventions are decided, not even at the national scale, but at the global scale. So you get these global conferences um, of computer scientists where, you know, basic languages are set, where rules are set for, you know, computation, like how these kinds of um, linguistic structures might work, like coding language, so coding linguistic structures might work like we, you get these sort of big international agreements um, about code. Um, so in the same way, um, you might get, like, so you're kind of getting these big international agreements about, you know, web Mercator as the standard projection. And I don't really know why the Mercator projection, I should probably look this up a bit. Um, it's kind of an interesting point. Why Mercator projection was chosen other over other projections, except that it is the default projection despite increasing criticism um, of that particular projection. Uh, and so what I was trying to do in my chapter is basically take this debate um, around the sort of homogeneity or the homogenization of space that you see in Carter's work um, and, and the way in which this becomes a sort of role of like an identity, how it's linked up with things like exploration uh, and maps to thinking but also actually code and the histories of computation aren't necessarily separate or different to that either. And what you actually get in something like digital mapping is that you get the refraternization, sort of re-engagement between this line of cartographic thinking that people like Simon Ryan, so when I talk about the cartographic eye, cartographic impulse, cartographic identities, cartographic imaginations, cartographic reason, like this Cartesian side is pretty well documented by a hell of a lot of people. Um, but on the other end, the kind of history of computing, which is not in geography, it's understood to be science and technology studies usually, actually sees the production of numeric identities, production of numeric ways of being, the production of data, the production of all of these different kinds of things. And I think previously um, they were kind of separate. So like on one hand you had the geometric 
sort of scientists, the Cartesians, and on the other hand, you have the kind of computational um, binary analytical logics of the um, Leibnizian sort of computational thinkers, so people like Turing. But what the digital or digital kind of computers enabled um, in the first kind of articulations in the 1970s of spatial science and computation, so by Esri and at, at, at Harvard, um, was the ability to kind of combine the geometry, to combine the image, the, the mathematics, the coordinate geometry with the binary. Uh, and so you get this combination of factors. Um, so you kind of get this, this, re, this re-melding of the Cartesian, the Leibnizians, sort of, you know, hundreds of years after the fact. And I think for me, the reason that you can get people like um, Jack Dangerman, who is like the man or something, um, for geographic information science. And so he was working on the first computer maps, which were actually just, you know, squares of pixels, you know, maybe... 32 by 32, where everything was just put into squares, or you might see maps where everything's a pentagon or a hexagon. So you kind of get these basic shapes, and then eventually these shapes become more and more detailed and more and more specific, and that's where you get um, sort of like vector shapes around the outside of, of like country sort of outlines and stuff like that. Um, but I think the reason that these two key ways of thinking were able to work together is because they had the same basic philosophy, um, which is this idea of cartographic reason, which is this idea, this explorative idea, the, the idea of geography's myth, which is that the world can be ordered, that, you know, the universal is still kind of particular. We need to kind of work on homogenizing things. So, like... Um, I talk a little bit about web safe colours and we talk a lot more about that, I think, next week in visualities. Um, but, you know, this idea of... Um, we actually read Carolyn Kane as well, whose work I really enjoy. Um, the fact that you have a certain amount of web safe colours that can be guaranteed for use across all screens. And if you look in the world and just imagine, well, well there's 256 colours that we can use. I mean, the world is so much more complicated than that. Um, but it's such a cartographic way of thinking. Um, you know, it's such a kind of way of thinking towards um, expectations of order, of similarity, of, um, you know, exploration as well. And I think the way in which, um, you know, I was sort of talking about a little bit about the contemporary computation. And if we think and look at contemporary spatial data science and contemporary cartographic thinking, geodata, as kind of exploratory, and the only difference is that you're going out harvesting and bringing back data as opposed to going out harvesting um, plants or cultural objects or indeed people and bringing them back and so we make these kind of visualizations but the process can be still kind of same and so I think these kind of underlying philosophies are still there and I think still very much open for criticism um, and I, that's kind of what I was trying to get in this final piece is to say well actually we can't just look at cartographies as these geometric kind of shapes anymore. They're not just point lines and polygons. They're not just drawings. 
but they're actually computations as well. They're actually shifters. Um, and I think, and I said at the beginning, this idea that Descartes enabled us to apply numbers to lines to transform them. Um, so, you know, a line could become an equation. Leibniz, Leibniz, <laughs> what's nuts? <laughs> um, I need a coffee. Um, Leibniz sort of offered the same, uh, you know, but in reverse, he enabled us to actually represent numbers as lines. And there's a really wonderful graphic in there where he sort of shows the representation of, of one and zero as a broken and an unbroken line um, from the I Ching hexagrams. And so if you can express lines as numbers and numbers as lines, then you can kind of express all things under these basic kind of cartographic characteristics. And I think, you know, that's something that's worth thinking about in our exploration of locative media. That's something that's worth thinking about in terms of, you know, if we are using maps and coordinates, how we actually construct. And I mean, if you're looking at projects for your second assignment about, um, you know, when you're doing a critique of a locative media project and you're looking at something that involves a map or geodata, you can't have geodata without coordinates. Um, and I think the only way that you could probably do it is maybe blockchain, but even then, it still requires trigonometry and geometry, so I'm just not sure. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really tricky. Um, and there's a big, big question mark there. Um, so you've listened to me rabbit on for like 57 minutes about cartographies. Um, any questions, let me know. Don't forget, uh, we've got class this Thursday. We've got a speaker, Karina Gold, from uh, the... Sogare Te Land Trust to talk to us a little bit about location in Berkeley and I think kind of nicely hopefully to offer a, a counter kind of cartographic claim to understanding um, a space that we've become very familiar with uh, through maps. So I will see you there. Um, stay safe uh, and I hope the air stays fine for all of you in the Bay Area and I'll see you tomorrow. Bye. <laughs>